Sarah Silverman is suing Meta and OpenAI over copyright infringement. Massachusetts lawmakers proposed total ban on the sale of cell phone location data, an anti-ESG sentiment on the rise. I'm Jackson Fordyce, and this is Venture Daily. Comedian Sarah Silverman and two authors, Richard Cadry and Christopher Golden, have filed class action lawsuits against Meta and OpenAI for copyright infringement. The comedian and two authors allege that Meta and OpenAI used the written content from their books to train their AI chatbots without permission. And many more authors and creators may soon join the legal fight against companies using copyrighted content. I wouldn't really be surprised if they do end up, if we do see a lot more lawsuits like these as they try to figure out what can and can't be done uh, for AI training models. That was Nick Lockett. Hey, my name is Nick Lockett. I'm the CTO and co-founder of Parasuite. Nick thinks these kinds of lawsuits likely aren't going away anytime soon. Yeah, I definitely think that this is something that's going to be talked about more in the years to come. I'm not sure if they're going to start their own lawsuits or sort of glob onto this larger class action lawsuit. Um, Copyright law is kind of funky where everything has to happen on sort of a case-by-case basis. If companies like Meta, OpenAI, Google, and others are barred from accessing copyrighted content, we may see chatbot training development slow significantly. Generative AI needs tons of good data, data that can teach the bots what real nuanced human conversation sounds like. Although not true across the board, much of the best content available online right now for chatbots to learn from is copyrighted content. This poses a big problem for companies developing large language models. I asked Nick how AI language model innovation would fare if barred from accessing copyrighted material. Yeah, great question. So traditionally, the answer to that would be uh, synthetic data. So you you generate <clears throat> uh, different types of data. You either make it yourself, uh, which isn't technically synthetic, or you make the data that you have go longer through a bunch of different techniques. The problem with that is we're finding recently that this uh, the process of generating synthetic data tends to make the bots uh, stupider, for lack of a better word. So there, um, if you use these techniques, which have been done for you know the past 10, 20 years, the quality of the chatbot that you're creating isn't as good. So I think that we're researchers are probably going to start looking into other methods of of making the data last longer, different types of training techniques potentially. Um, but at the end of the day, you're Machine learning models are only as good as the data that you put in. If copyrighted material does receive legal protection against scraping from large language models, Nick thinks this could seriously constrain the quality of output from generative AI bots. Absolutely, yeah. It's, you know, like I was saying, you know, your your bots are only going to be as good as the data that you put in. And right now, it's kind of open season on, because none of this has been figured out, it's open season on you can use anything that you find on the internet, which is just a wealth of data. If we do start constraining this down and the, that training data set gets smaller and smaller, the quality of the bots is definitely going to be hurt. That was Nick Lockett, co-founder and CTO of Parasuite. Nick, thanks for coming on the podcast. Absolutely. My pleasure. Massachusetts lawmakers just proposed a near total ban on the buying and selling of location data taken from consumer mobile devices. The proposal is the first of its kind due to its severity, but certainly not unique in its focus as consumer privacy continues to be a hot-button issue in state legislatures. The bill is called the Location Shield Act. If passed, it would almost completely ban the sale of location data for Massachusetts residents. 
This is a big step past other states who have recently passed data privacy laws, which require tech companies to receive either opt-in responses from citizens or to insert opt-out alternatives when collecting private data. Trade associations representing the tech industry are pushing back on the sweeping proposal, suggesting that Massachusetts instead consider something like what Connecticut just passed, a law that requires opt-in permission from consumers. Many believe that the definition of sale in this case is much too broad and do not expect this total ban to be passed by lawmakers in next year's session. My instinct is no. Uh, I think from at least kind of my cursory reading of, of what this ban involves, it goes quite a bit further than I think anything that's passed so far. This would really be the first of its kind. That was Michael Cortez. Hi, my name is Michael Cortez. I'm a partner at YL Ventures, an early stage cybersecurity firm. Although Michael does not believe the ban will be passed into law, he understands why this issue is so relevant in state governments right now. I don't think any state so far has, has gone so far as to really ban the sale of, of any location data on its residents. I think, though, that um, from a political standpoint, I can certainly understand why this is being pushed and why it's getting some notoriety and some traction. But uh, it would surprise me, quite frankly, if this law passed. It would not surprise me if similar measures uh, were, were introduced in other states. But you know, I would suspect that anything that goes quite this far would kind of have a, a tough time passing, despite the fact that this is in a, a pretty liberal state. And I believe that um, in Massachusetts, the Democrats who, who kind of put forth this bill control, um, you know, both houses of local government is my understanding anyway. But it would still, it would surprise me if, if this made it all the way to law. Michael thinks a law like this, although noble when it's designed to protect consumers, may actually hurt them in the long run. I think that, like all of these laws, um, internationally and you know what we've seen kind of state by state so far, I think the intent is really noble uh, to give basically consumers more visibility into the data uh, and how it's being used, and more agency, you know, more control over access to their data. I think all of these pursuits are noble, and I think correct. I think though that you know if these kinds of laws, again from kind of my cursory reading, end up passing. The potential impact, um, you know, on commerce, on business, and the potential ancillary impact of, you know, laws that aren't completely fleshed out and have perhaps some sort of questionable definitions, um, you know, could actually be detrimental. I think ultimately to uh, to American consumers. So, you know, ultimately, I think that the the message and the mission behind these types of laws is a just one and is a correct one. I think that if we were to see these types of laws, you know, these uh, I'm going to go so far as to say kind of draconian type measures pass, I think the impact actually ultimately would probably be a net negative on the, on the average consumer in America. I asked Michael if he expects that proposals like this would put pressure on the federal government to come up with a comprehensive national law in the near future. I do. And actually, I think you know, that, that, that is a, a positive outcome of this. I mean, I think that we saw last year um, in Congress, we got pretty close to bringing some bipartisan legislation to the floor for a vote. And I think that this, this sort of patchwork approach of the states is, I, I believe, creating some additional pressure on the federal government to come up with, you know, an omnibus approach that kind of makes sense for everybody that can serve as sort of the least common denominator for all the states. I think that's really what's needed here. So to the extent that, you know, what, what's happening in Massachusetts, what's happening in Colorado and some of these other states, to the extent that that has the, the ultimate effect of creating some sort of federal legislation, uh, I'm incredibly supportive of that. I think that that's what ultimately needs to happen. So yes, to answer your question, I'm hopeful that this is creating additional pressure and, and even more hopeful that that's where we end up in the next legislative cycle. 
it's surprising that an omnibus data privacy bill at the federal level has failed to gain traction, especially in light of all the state-level activity recently. Michael thinks the main reason isn't necessarily politically motivated, but more due to how little lawmakers are aware about the extent of the technology's capabilities. In many instances, I think politicians are still trying to understand you know, how quickly technology is advancing um, and really what's possible. I think that this is a situation where, you know, this might be a controversial opinion, particularly coming from VC, but I'm not sure technology is always the answer. Um, you know, I think for a lot of people in my field, the answer to any new problem is innovation. But I think in this case, it really does require sort of a collaborative effort between legislators and, and, and tech companies. I think in this case, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty right now in terms of how this data is being collected, what's being made available. And I think until you have a really firm grasp of kind of what's actually being done by some of these large companies and what's really possible, I think it's hard to kind of put forth very thoughtful legislation. So without knowing, you know, the inner machinations of what's going on in Congress, I would suspect that a lot of it is really not a function of people not wanting to do the right thing. I think it's more a function of information gathering and and really seeing you know, kind of what's possible before we can get a uh, firm consensus around anything. If this ban is passed in Massachusetts and then adopted by other states, Michael thinks it would significantly hurt tech companies and their profits. I, I think the narrative is that it absolutely can and will. Um, you know, I think with respect to this uh, legislation that's just come out, I mean, I, I see that it's been backed by the ACLU and a bunch of other groups that, you know, say that this is really, really important. But I think, you know, the counter argument to that. Um, I saw that there's a lawyer who represents the, the state privacy and security coalition basically saying that, you know, anything that, that does this, you know, the definition of what constitutes a sale is, is extremely broad, too broad. And, um, you know, I think companies will have to basically uh, adhere to whatever the legal language is and whatever law is passed. And so I think if, if these kinds of laws do get passed, I think it will significantly restrict companies' ability to serve you know, targeted ads to serve kind of consumers. And I think there will be a significant, almost has to be a significant downstream impact on profits as a result. That was Michael Cortez, partner at YL Ventures. Always great to have you on, Michael. Thanks, Jackson. Appreciate it. An HSBC survey from June of this year reveals a growing anti-ESG sentiment in the United States. Analysts conducting the survey polled 310 professionals across the globe who work in ESG. Those who were surveyed represented $8.9 trillion in assets across 292 institutions. The results of the survey show that only 25% of respondents in North America said sustainability is a primary or secondary objective. This is down compared to last year's 37% figure. Also, around 44% of North American professionals responded that their motivations for having an ESG strategy have become weaker over the past year. I spoke with Himalaya Rao Patlapali. Hi, everyone. My name is Himalaya. I'm the managing director of the BFM Fund. The BFM Fund focuses their investments on black founders. I asked Himalaya why she thinks we are seeing a rise of anti-ESG sentiment in America. One, I think that one of the, the main causes of it is that it has become a little bit politicized. Um, and, you know, there's there's issues around what ESG stands for and the impacts that it has on it. And I think that there's been a lot of backlash, not just from ESG, but like synonymously then a backlash on DEI initiatives. DEI stands for diversity, equity and inclusion. Um, where folks feel like it's uh, taking away or like furthering an agenda that has become uh, like one side versus another. The survey notes that a Republican anti-ESG campaign may be part of the reason why we are seeing ESG sentiment decline. Himalaya thinks polarization in politics has undermined the goals of ESG. 
You know, I think that um, overall, like, you know, in the last, like, five years, we've really become politicized as a country and, like, really polarized in our definitions. And that really, like, undercuts us all when we don't have, like, a base set of facts that we're working from that are, like, the reality, right? Like, when we have to dispute on whether climate change is a real thing or not, it really hinders our ability to actually address it in any kind of meaningful capacity. I asked Himalaya if she thought ESG as a term being changed can be more appealing to fund managers and LPs. You know, I feel like these terms like oscillate like and like, you know, every few years there's a new term that comes out that's like a little bit more like encompassing or um, a little bit more like palatable to different folks. I think that lately, you know, it's like people have been moving from ESG to like DEI specific metrics or like sustainable focused metrics. I think that Um, You know, like I, I'm not sure if it's necessarily the terminology, but rather like the core base level of the fact that we can't agree on like the economic environmental benefits or like societal benefits of having a focus that is both inclusive of different types of folks in the innovation ecosystem. Although anti-ESG sentiment is on the rise, Himalaya does not believe the results of the survey spell the end for ESG efforts in the U.S., I definitely don't think that it's the end at all. I don't think that it's even like remotely diminishing from like a long-term standpoint. I think that actually in the last five years and especially in the last two years, there's been a huge proliferation in the decentralization of venture capital and so many more fund managers, new and emerging fund managers have started fund ones. And so you're starting to see a lot more funds that are run by diverse people um, and then also have a focus on diverse founders. So I definitely don't think that it is by far, you know, leaving us in any way. I also think that there is so much support of this from different institutions on different levels when we think about like the federal level, the state level, but then also like a combination of like private corporations like banks, you know, like Bank of America, the BFM funded what the BFM fund um, rather was funded by Bank of America. And that's just like one example of a private institution that's invested in over 200 funds led by diverse managers that have diverse theses. So I think that there's still a lot of money and support going to different diverse led funds and diverse focused funds. And one thing I do want to mention is that a lot more diverse focused and diverse led funds are starting to do syndicates. And I think actually conversely to what, you know, is being reported, I think what we'll start to see is that more smaller funds will be co-investing together and start to see that economic benefit and be able to show tangentially. And like, you know, I, I mentioned to you before that there was the McKinsey report that just came out and that report really like demonstrates through data, not just the like moral or social benefit, but the economic benefit of investing diversely. That's Himalaya Rapalapali, Managing Director for the BFM Fund. Himalaya, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Venture Daily. Today's show is produced by Josiah Simons and Jackson Fordyce. Our theme song was created by Benjamin Cook. If you liked today's episode, please give us an honest review wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see y'all tomorrow morning.